Welcome, my friends, to Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat, the podcast that never ends, where we gather our clan and talk about the peace and love in our lives, the difficulties along the journey, and how we rise up from them. We will experience a little thing I call cluberty together, and by the end of the show, we're going to find our sweet spot. I'm Uncle Dave, and our transformation starts right here. Hey now, and how are you doing? I want to welcome you to the next episode of Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat. I can't wait to talk about this guest because, one, I want everybody to pay attention. There's going to be so many gems part of this, but also one of the reasons why we're bringing on Lily Wu is because Lily Wu is asking us for a little help. She's a goon for good. She wants to do good, but she also needs good right now and this time of year as well as every time of year we always should be doing paying forward kindness and that's what we're bringing on lily for for a little kindness hear her amazing stories uh just a few touches of stories and also just to support her as much as she can as what she's going through so how are you doing today lily i'm doing fine thank you okay awesome and i just want to let everybody know how grateful I am that Lily's on. We had recorded this episode earlier, and uh, due to technical issues, it did not sound as we would love to have the message out there. And Lily graciously uh, was able to come back and record the episode. So I just want to thank her again for that. That was just great. And we well, and now we can go into the the episode now. Lily, I know we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but I want to start off why this episode is going to be so important uh, for you as well as for others? Well, um, I'm currently on a waiting list uh, for a donor for my kidney. Uh, I'm suffering from end-stage renal disease, which means that my kidneys have totally stopped functioning, and I am relying on dialysis to continue to live. Okay, yeah, and and can you explain to that? I I know we we had explained, you know, it's more than just dialysis because you you are at in in home dialysis. Yeah, um, you know, most people go to the hospital to have the uh, treatment done, and it's uh, the treatment they have uh, at the hospital is called hemodialysis, which is done through a catheter in the chest or uh, through a uh, fistula in the arm where the blood from your body is funneled through some tubes into a gigantic filtering machine. And all the toxins from your blood are filtered uh, out of your body through this machine. And the treatment lasts usually about three to four hours uh, where the blood flows into the machine uh, about 70 times uh, during the course of the treatment. I did not do well on that uh, treatment because when I uh, finished the treatment, I could barely walk. I could barely stand. It took me forever to go up the stairs to my bedroom at home. And so, and, and, and then it took me at least a day to recover. The treatments are done every other day. So by the time your body recovers from the treatment, it's time to do the next one. I have since uh, changed to a procedure called peritoneal dialysis, which is... Uh, Dialysis is uh, done through a uh, catheter in the belly rather than through uh, the uh, bloodstream. And it uses, it's a, it's a, a fantastic scientific uh, uh, discovery as to how they could do this. But it uses the, the 
uh, peritoneal lining of the body uh, as a filter. And so basically, uh, there, there is a solution that's put into your body. It sits in your body for a period of time. And then through osmosis, all the toxins goes into the liquid that's in your belly, and then it's filtered out, and a new, uh, then then a new set of uh, solution is put into your belly, and that um, that technique, uh, I, I actually did much better on, uh, and and feeling much much better uh, uh, having my treatment that way. The downside of it is that that treatment is has to be done every day for ten hours a day, and so. It's uh, usually done at night, so I usually get hooked up at about 8.30, 9 o'clock, and then I'm hooked to a machine for the duration of the evening until about 7 or 8, depending on on uh, how cooperative the machine is, because if you're not laying properly, the machine goes off on uh, an alarm. So really, it doesn't allow for um, much sleep, but at the same time, you know, during it, it because it's done every day, it's much gentler on the body. And so, at uh, you know, when you're done, you can actually feel pretty normal during the day uh, on most days. You know, sometimes you feel really tired uh, because of the lack of sleep. But, uh, you know, it's a procedure that I have to live with until I can find a kidney. Yeah, wow. I mean, it just sounds incredible. I mean, you know, either procedure sounds really incredible and and needed uh, for those who need it. I mean, but 10 hours and, you know, that's if it goes, if it goes right. Sometimes I, I know you explained that it, it could go longer if there's a, a kink in the machine, if there's a little movement, if you, as you're trying to rest yourself, it's not real quality REM sleep uh, that you'd, you'd be having. Right. <clears throat> but there, there is no choice right. in this. So. Right. And that, and that's why we want to make sure we wanted to highlight this because uh, you know and it's not just the kidney. So I want to tell, let everybody also know uh, about Lily and you know she's going to say she's not a hero, but uh, we have proof to uh, counter that argument. Uh, one, she she actually you know was recognized in 2004 by the World Olympics Committee as an everyday hero, and uh, she is a hero. She's been a, she was a principal for uh, more than 25 years in lower Manhattan, uh, three quarters of a mile from ground zero. And uh, as, as she'll tell us in a, few, a little while, there was no rules that day. You know, I, I mean, just that day, living through that as a principal, I, I know because I have family members who are teachers and, and uh, my wife is a principal. So to understand you know, the life of a principal is not easy, but that day alone, I can't imagine what you experienced. Well, it, it, uh, you know, (laughs) nobody can predict what happens, you know, every day is is, uh, full of surprises, but that particular day uh, was primary day in New York city. And so, you know, we had um, a lot of strangers walking in and out of the school uh, you know, people that would normally would not be entering the building. Uh, also, it was the second full day of kindergarten. And so we were trying to get the little ones acclimated to uh, coming to school uh, and, and, and being uh, separated by their parents. And so, there, you know, there's a big buzz uh, when, when school is starting. 
You know, my school happens to be a rather large school. Uh, it, we had about 1,100 children. Uh, and, and, you know, in Chinatown, uh, where our school is located, it's a very concentrated uh, area where, you know, the population is very concentrated. And so, you know, and, and there's very little space for kids, basically. And so on, uh, uh, on that day when the kids were coming in, I, ha- I was at the front door greeting them. And I was called inside uh, momentarily to uh, speak to a parent when another parent came into the uh, into the hallway and said, Mrs. Wu, you know, a plane hit the World Trade Center. And I'm and I'm looking at her like, are you what are you saying? You know, and in my mind, I'm thinking maybe some private plane uh, lost its way and has just bumped it, you know, slammed into the, the building. But when I went outside, I saw this gaping hole. Uh, in in the side of the World Trade Center, we could actually see the building down the street from our our school, because we're you know as you said we're only located about uh, three quarters of a mile away, and and so when I looked up and saw the cloud of smoke going up, you know the first thought in my mind is I I have to go upstairs in the building to see if the up uh, the rooftop playground was cleared of all the children because I didn't want them looking at uh, uh, at the site. And so when I went upstairs, uh, fortunately, there was uh, no class up there. Normally at this time of year, uh, we have our classes up on the roof for orientation, you know, basically going over the uh, playground uh, rules because uh, we have a rooftop playground up there uh, for lack of space on the ground, on the street level. Um, but we have to go through the procedures to make sure all the classes understand what areas for what grades and and you know how they should be uh, uh, behaving while they're up there and uh, fortunately there wasn't a class up there but when we turned around we saw the second plane swoop around and hit the second building uh, and that's when I think pandemonium hit mm. the school I went back downstairs to uh, the uh, general office area and you could hear the phones ringing off the hook and, and, you know, people, you know, all the secretaries and staff was trying to answer questions. We had people trying to come into the building to pick up the children. Uh, and suddenly the phone lines went out. So we then the phone stopped ringing. But, you know, we had a, a, a rush of people coming into the building trying to retrieve the children that were uh, in the building. Unfortunately, because the phone lines were down, parents weren't able to get in touch with each other. And so we had multiple people coming into the building trying to pick up the same child. And at the same time, there were children who were not being picked up. And so this went on for hours. Uh, you know, we, we had to keep everybody calm and find some way of uh, releasing the children without, uh, you know, without having uh, chaos going on. Because we had to know where the children were going in case another person was looking for them. So all the procedures we had normally in hand uh, had to go out the window. And so we had to establish uh, a procedure right there and then as to how we were going to release the children to the people who were coming in to get them. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, that's a, you know, truthfully, you know, and I want to go a little further back than than 9-11 as well, but, you know, that's really the true sense of what a leader is. You know, not only were you the leader of the school, everybody's looking to you as, as the principal, uh, you know, that day. And, and 
you know, in the principal rule book, they, <laughs> none of this is, you know, when the world is, when the world is collapsing around you, this is how you get the kids back to their parents. Uh, there, there's no rules and, and that you had the ability and to, to figure that out. That's so impressive. Well, you know, it, it's, it's, I guess in many ways, everybody has that intuition. It's just like childbirth. You know, you can go to as many classes, Lamaze classes as you can, or, or read as many books on, on how childbirth should happen. But if a baby wants to come, it's going to come, and it's going to come at a moment's notice, and, and there's no thinking involved in terms of, you know, uh, at that moment, you just have to respond. Mm. And so when we had, you know, when this happened, you know, nobody would ever foresee a plane hitting the World Trade Center. And, and, and you know, and, and the, the, the stuff that went on afterwards, nobody in, in the right minds could ever foresee. And so, you know, you have to kind of use your instincts to, uh, to do what, is, uh, what you can. And fortunately for us, uh, our building had an internal uh, 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 public announcement system. So I was able to uh, talk to all of the teachers in a building at once and give them a, a, you know, a procedure to follow so that we could have some order uh, in dismissing the children. Uh, you know, we had uh, extra staff uh, minding all the doors because obviously a school has uh, a number of exits. And so we had people at the doors trying to make sure that people were orderly coming in and out. And, and the teachers had a, 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 were asked to take the names of the people pick, coming up to the classrooms to pick up the children and what their relationship was to the child. We also had to uh, take a second step to make sure that the child recognized the person that was picking them up and identify them. And so, uh, you know, and, to, and have a contact number for them once the phones, you know, were working again or whoever was looking for them to be able to contact the person who had the child. Uh, you know, it, it's a scary sight when you, when, you, uh, when you see something like that going on. And then you had, you know, the staff themselves who are worried about their families and what's, what to, what's going on, and they want to get to their families as well. So it's, uh, you know, it was a lot of things happening at the same time. You know, and as a principal, I, I, you know, I know that 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 building is, is your home, and in, in, in this instance, it was there for a few days. You you were there with your staff, from what I've been told. You know, you slept in the school for three days to make sure families were connected and things like that. But could you tell me about the leadership? Because I know we've spoken about your leadership, just why this school was was your home, how you became a principal. Uh, and, and how you you shifted, you know, it, it's not just being put in the right place. You you also have the leadership ability to put yourself in the position to shift the community and shift the idea of your your passions. Well, when I applied for the school, I I, I was actually um, solicited by the superintendent to take the school. Um, when I went when. Uh, when the school, when I was appointed to the school, the school was a failing school. It was uh, on a list of schools that were not doing well. And it was due, uh, due to the fact that the kids were not uh, on grade level or reading, you know, very well or, or doing math very well. And so I was put in place to make that change. 
And so, uh, you know, it was it was uh, a challenge to get the mindset change, but it, it made it more difficult because I was not the choice of the school, but the choice of the superintendent. So coming in, uh, it, I had to convince the uh, the staff that I was the right person for the job and that I wasn't there to just go in and, uh, you know, turn everything upside down, but it's to really to look at what would, what was best for the children that they serve. And so it took a good while for me to, uh, to make those changes, you know, but I found that in order to make those changes, you really have to listen to, uh, to what the staff needs, what the children need, you know, what's getting in their way and, and really look at uh, whether or not they're a good fit for the building. And I found that for the most part, it wasn't that the teachers didn't do their job. I think it was more that they didn't know how to do their job better. Most of them were working very, very hard, and but they were sort of spinning the wheels. They didn't get an, uh, an understanding of what good teaching was. And so, you know, we, we opened the classroom doors and said, you know, you know, maybe we should visit each other's classrooms and, and, and learn from the, the ones who are really succeeding at certain things and then being able to replicate those things in the classrooms. But I had to make it a, um, a safe environment for them to try to, to the, uh, the, make the changes, but not feel threatened every time they didn't quite accomplish what I wanted them to do. And so we had to spend a lot of time building trust in the building. And, and if it didn't go right, I gave them a second chance. And so, you know, as, if you make a mistake, that's fine. But, you know, as long as you learn from your mistake and you improve the next time, that's good for us. And so, you know, having that approach actually made it a, a, a much better place for the teachers to learn as well as the children. And as a result of that change in mindset, we went from a failing school to being one of the best in New York State and in the country. The school has since become a, a United States Blue Ribbon School. And, and that's a, you know, really a, a impressive to make that type of switch uh, you know, uh, through, throughout your career, and just to let everybody know, I mean, in, in 2002, you were the New York State Distinguished Educator. You received the New York, both New York City and New York State Distinguished Educator Awards. You were recognized, you know, like I said, by the World Olympics Committee as an everyday hero. During that, you know, rebuilding of, of Lower Manhattan, you you got to meet President Bush uh, because you were one of the first schools that uh, reopened uh, right afterwards. And, you know, I know a lot of teachers and teachers really do need the recognition and principals and administrative staff for the things that they do well. And there's a lot of things they do well. And, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, I- I- impressive how you helped your community because you, uh, you, you're, you're still we're, we're so passionate about the Chinatown community. Well, you know, the um, 9-11 took all of us by surprise and, you know, the proximity of our school to, uh, to the uh, uh, to Ground Zero was not nearly as close as some of the other schools in the area. Uh, you know, so those schools were so affected that they had to uh, relocate to other buildings uh, in other areas uh, until, it, you know, the cleanup in their area was done. Uh, our school was affected by... Um, 
idea attacks by the dust that came into the building. And, and, you know, it took us about a week to clean up before we were, were able to reopen. Uh, I, you know, I got a call from the White House um, on October 3rd, actually October 1st. Uh, I was doing a uh, walkthrough of the classrooms and I just passed by my main office and my secretary was wildly waving at me to come into the office. And so I walked in, I said, you know, I looked at her and she said, what's up? She goes, I have the White House on the phone for you. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at her at, as if she had two heads on her shoulders. <laughs> and, I, and, and I said, are you kidding me? Because, no, I have the White House on the phone for you. And I, uh, I got on the phone and I, I skeptically said, you know, hello, who's this? And, and they said, this is the White House advance team. I said, no, really, who is this? <laughs> and they said, no, no, this is the White House advance team. Uh, President Bush would like to make a visit to a school um, near Ground Zero uh, to make his announcement to the world about how resilient the United States is. Um, and your school is one of two schools that um, is on his radar to visit uh, uh make a visit so i said to them uh so when would this visit be and they said in two days <laughs> so i said two days and they said to me because yes and this is why we're calling you we plan to send an advanced team down to the school uh to uh take a look at the building and to uh, make sure everything is safe enough for to bring a president in and and so uh, you know we we wanted to inform you that this is what we're going to do. So I I said okay. Um, so I hung up. Within an hour of that phone call, we had a team of people coming in asking for the blueprints and and um, having a tour uh, of the building with the custodian and then uh, charting out uh, where the president would be visiting and 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 which teachers were in that corridor. And, and uh, he couldn't go above the second floor because if he had to evacuate, he couldn't, uh, they didn't want him on an upper floor. Mm. And so, uh, you know, and they wanted the social security numbers of the staff that were on the building to have their background checked. So if there was a major, major uh, uptaking in preparing for this possible visit. Uh, and so, and we had two uh, hot phone lines brought in to the, uh, to the Secret Service and and, and uh, to the Pentagon, it it, it was crazy with all this going on, and and then the the person the people who were coming in to do all this, uh, they say to me because you can't tell anybody what's happening, <laughs> and if you can imagine what all this stuff happening around the building and and you know people walking in and out of places and you know teachers looking at me like what's going on, you know for me not be able to tell them. Uh, was was something else. They also went uh, into the neighborhood to check the rooftops where they would put snipers just in case. Uh, they they came in and put a tent in my in my uh, uh, playground uh, where the doors opened up into the uh, playroom, and so they wanted to the, um, the president's car to drive into the playground area under the tent so that he can go from the tent into the uh, into the building. So it was uh, it was quite a quite a an experience with him coming. Yeah, but when no. he was here, he 
he was very he was very good to everybody. Uh, you know, he was um, very uh, he, he, you know the, the way he talked to the teach and the teachers and to the kids was very heartfelt, and and you can see that it was really it really touched him as to what the children were saying to him and how the teachers were were expressing their gratitude to uh, to what, what was going on. Yeah, that that's got to be uh, you know just an, an incredible experience, uh, and, and you know. I guess, you know, because you have a very large pride for the Chinatown community and, you know, you know you're part of the the, the, the drum and bugle corps, uh, you know, the, the New York Skyliners. Uh, so, you, so you know how to coordinate uh, lots of different things. I mean, you, you're, you know, I'd love to hear about that as well, how, how that blends into, you know, some of what, who you are and, and what you do. Well, you know, I, I came over as a, a three-year-old child from Hong Kong, not speaking English. And I lived in Chinatown. I went to elementary school in Chinatown. And fortunately, I had wonderful teachers who taught me English well enough for me to make it into specialized programs outside of the area. But my heart had always been in Chinatown. And, you know, uh, growing up, I I volunteered at uh, the Chinese school. I went to Chinese school. I joined the Drum and Bugle Corps uh, at the Chinese school and, and participated there uh, as a youngster. And then subsequently, uh, as I grew up, I uh, became the director of the Drum and Bugle Corps there. Uh, you know, the Drum and Bugle Corps uh, was more a sanctuary for, the, for kids to stay off the streets. I mean, the, during the era that I grew up, there were lots of gangs uh, trying to recruit uh teenagers into the gangs and you know life was not pleasant for young people on the street and so you know having the drum and bugle corps was a sanctuary where the kids can come and be safe and make friendships and where parents trusted uh you know a a uh, an environment where their children could you know hang out and make friends and and, and uh, enjoy themselves and you know it's uh a lot of my leadership skills were learned uh, were learned in, in in my participation in the drum corps activity. You know, as a youngster, you know, you know, learning uh, how to team with others, and uh, you know, later on when I uh, when when I joined the uh, the New York Skyliners, it really taught me how to you know that that people have different learning styles. You know, I, I had always been someone who was very much in love with music, uh, but never had formal uh, music lessons. Because then when I was in the drum corps, I was not a musician. I was, when I, when I was in the drum corps in Chinatown, I was not a musician. I was a baton twirl. And so it was, uh, you know, something that uh, uh, was part of a band. Uh, but I always liked the music part of it but always envy the people who were able to play it. I uh, later on took up a challenge with one of the kids that I, uh, that was in the drum corps with me, where he was kind of goofing off and not living to his potential as a horn player. And, you know, he, he was very talented, but didn't want to uh, practice. And so I said, you know, if you imagine you could practice, if you practice how good you would be. And he said to me, well, if you think, you know, it's easy, uh, why don't you do it? 
<laughs> I said, and I thought about it. I said, you know what? I'll take you up on that challenge. If I can play some of the music you play, then you got to, then you have to, you know, do better than that. And so I got somebody to play the music for me. I recorded it, put the fingerings on the bugle, you know, on the music for the bugle, and started to practice on my own as to how to play it. And I did. And I got him, you know, back on track. Uh, but because I had the experience, I, I wanted to continue, uh, you know, being part of a drum and bugle corps. And so I, I, I was uh, part of one in Long Island called Bill's Boys, and then later on joined uh, a competing corps called the New York Skyliners. And actually, that taught me a lot in terms of how children learn. Because, you know, if I had to equate myself uh, as a musician, I would have to say I was pretty much special needs where I had to have an accommodation in order to learn. And uh, for me to be part of the New York Skyliners, where you are marching on a football field, playing the music and and marching all over the place like like uh, halftime on a, uh, at a football game. The, the whole purpose is that for drum and bugle call, the music has to be memorized. You're not reading the music. And so for me, if I was able to practice listening to the music and practice fingering the music and then play it as well as a person who is able to read the music, as long as I'm able to do that on the field, then I'm as good as the next person who has had professional music lessons. Mm. And so with that, you know, with, with that in mind, to provide access to special needs kids in schools, you know, it, it's a matter of getting them to the end point. If you want to get them to read, then how do we get them to read? Do, you know, what kinds of uh, entry points do we, to, uh, and access points do we give them in order to get to that same point? And so, you know, in school, I was using the arts as a motivation for the kids, where the kids say, you know, I want to I want to sing as well as that person. Well, in order to sing, you're going to have to read the words. And so, you know, I can read the words with you or sing with words and let's follow along. So, you know, it, there, there were a lot of ways where music and, 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 and other things would, would help kids in school. And that really, uh, you know, help my school uh, achieve what it needed to do. You were able to integrate the, the two, the music and, and the learnings that you personally had with, with the children who might not, not have been. Was that, that was one of the things growing up in, in, in the, the 70s. You know, I got tested once to play the violin, and I could, they, they told me, you're, you're tone deaf, you can't play. And uh, that was the end of my music. So I'm always amazed for people who are able to play. And, you know, you became one of the first, you know, the few females uh, on the horn line. So not only did you learn, you know, just to, to learn, but you did that and you've become, you know, you're part of the honor guard and, and you're now a, a lifetime member, right? Uh, they, they've given you an honorary position, but you're still part of it. You're still doing that and you can play whenever you, you feel well enough. Well, I'm not part of the competing core anymore because I can't, hard, I can hardly move as much as that as I used to, but there is an alumni uh, group of that core, the New York Skyliners alumni, drum and bugle, 
and we have people who are, uh, you know, the they're seniors. You know, we have people who are as old as 80 and 90 years old as part of that core. And, it, and it, you know, it's, it's a lifelong friendship that we build through that activity. Hmm. Well, I, I think that's what's great. And that's one of the things that you want to also talk about is your lifelong. I mean, not only have you been a teacher, the, 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 the awards you've received, you know, you've got the proclamations. It's also, you know, this battle that you're under and that you've learned uh, so much from and through. Now, about the kidney, so, you know, I, I know we, and I want to make sure that everybody knows we can live with one kidney. So if you're donating it, it's not that you're giving something. My mom actually lost her kidney before I was born, and she lived uh, as an overweight American uh, for for more than 50 years without a kidney. Uh, and, you know, so you can live, you can have children, you can still do all the things that, that are needed. And, you know, I, I don't know if you want to give us any information that, to uh, – try to assist people to feel a little bit more comfortable in what they need to do. Well, the, you know, I'm, I'm registered on two lists. One is a uh, matching donors list, which means that the person who wants to give a kidney to me will match with my blood type. And uh, the, the other list is uh, called the uh, national exchange uh, program where a person who is willing and is healthy enough to donate a kidney, but is not a match to my blood type. My blood type happens to be O positive. It's the most common blood type, but it's the one that has to be uh, matched in order to receive. We can give to everybody, uh, but we can't receive. Uh, you know, we can only receive from uh, O positive uh, uh, blood people. The uh, the, the the way the way we the, the donation happens is that if you are interested, uh, you can uh, go onto my uh, website that the National Kidney Foundation set up for me. There's a, a link that you can click on, and I think uh, David's going to give that to you. Yeah, it'll be in the um, show notes, and, and, and just for those people uh, who are not going to wait for the show notes, it's going to be. Uh, the, the the website is you know the HTPPS is uh, nkr dot org slash dtm six four six and that'll take you to Lily's page which will also reinforce all the things that we've been talking about today uh, with with your ability to learn all the music and to finger uh, to learn how to play and the being part of that team. Is really just you know a fine tune. It's like being the principal uh, in in lots of ways because there's lots of moving parts. But how you work together for the common goal and in a beautiful way to hear the music. Well, I think you know it. It really made me think about how kids learn. I think you know when you have kids who are trying to do everything, you know, especially the special needs kids who are really trying hard to do everything that the other kids are doing, but are really frustrated uh, because you can't learn the same way. They're, they're, you know, the way they connect to things is not the usual way. You know, I, I liken that to my learning music. And, uh, you know, I, as I said, you know, I, I, if I had to, to classify myself as to what kind of musician I was, I would have to say I was 
one who was special needs, where I needed accommodations in order to play as well as the person next to me. You know, as long as I was making the music to sound right, you know, and play along at the same time, the same tempo, the same tune, you know, who cares how I learned it? You know, uh, the drum and bugle corps requires us to memorize our music. So, you know, it's not as if I had to read the music as we as we did our uh, performances. I had to I had to play it. And so if I can play it by memorization without having read it, you know, reading it, then, you know, then I've been successful at what I, as, I, as to what I wanted to do. I think, you know, as an example of how I put that into place in my school, all my third graders at my school had to take violin, every single one of them, whether they were special ed or, or general ed or gifted and talented, every one of them had to take a weekly violin lesson. And it was a group lesson. And so it didn't matter how well you played, but if you can't play it with the person next to you, if you play fast and the person next to you, then it's not music. Okay, so it, 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 it's important that they listen to each other. And so they had to listen to the, either, you know, the, the ones who played quickly had to slow down. The ones who couldn't play it as fast had to try to speed it up. And at some point it meshed all together and it sounded like music. It also helped the kids learn to say, you know, to, to help each other. Uh, you know, I'll show you how to finger it if you show me how to do math. You know, the, mm. the special ed kids were better at, you know, many of the special ed kids were much better at music and dance than, than the, uh, the smart kids in the class. And so, you know, there was an exchange which was never, you know, I never saw before where kids were helping each other learn their parts, you know, during uh, recess time. And, and then in class, they were helping each other with their, with their work. And it made a much more cohesive classroom. And so, if, if, you know, the, all the lessons that were learned in the music classes, you know, were able to be transferred to the classroom. And, and you know, in terms of speaking, you know, we had a lot of English uh, second language kids, you know, the, the uh, opportunity to learn songs and to, um, to perform uh, in, in dance, where they had to listen to instructions, it helped them with all the skills they needed to learn English better. And so, you know, as a result of that, we had a kid, like I said, the, the school was once a, a failing school with about 65% of the kids not being able to speak English and graduating as such to a school that re- maintained the same, same uh, demographics coming in the building but graduating about 70% of the children making it into the specialized programs in middle school. And so, you know, there was a lot of transformation in children during the six years they were in the school. And, and you know, it, it, it really has made me feel very warm inside because I've always felt that the schools in Chinatown always play second fiddle to the other schools in our district. Uh, you know, we're in District 2, where we're considered the silk stocking district. And, and you know, a lot of the schools uptown um, are well-to-do, 
uh, schools would, uh, you know, with parents with money. Uh, you know, Chinatown parents are low-income families. And so being able to give them uh, a school where the kids can learn and exit on a level playing ground and then being able to make it into the better schools and programs in the city, uh, you know, it, it, I, I think that schools in Chinatown have improved dramas- uh, uh, dr- drastically, uh, you know, over the years where we feel that we've done the uh, neighborhood justice in giving them, uh, you know, great schools to attend. That's awesome. Uh, you know, you're, you're leaving that I- impact because, as you said, the school was not, uh, you know, well rated, and, and the way you left it as, as a blue rated school, blue, blue ribbon school nationwide, really says something about you, your your ability to lead, and you know, and that's why you know we want to help you. We want to help everybody. And uh, as you had mentioned earlier, you know, if you're able to donate, uh, it, you know, a, a, a swap would would be uh, the optimal. But if not, you still could donate. And then that can you explain to us about how that puts you higher on the list that if you are able to get somebody to donate? Well, the national exchange program is where if you will, if you are willing to donate a kidney and you are not a match to me. You can donate through the exchange program to a person who is a match to you. And that would then guarantee that I would get a kidney that matches me within six months. And should anything happen to you, the donor of that kidney, you will be put on a priority list if your existing kidney should fail. Mm. And so it's a win-win proposition for donors and and you know it it they try to do the best to make it as painless as possible you know uh essentially i think all of the uh medical expenses are covered by health insurance um and so you don't have to worry uh about that and i think i i heard that from some of the donors that uh potential donors that i had is that you know employers will give you leave time uh, you know, to to uh, give a don't uh, give a kidney, because I think there's a there's a fund that that helps subsidize people's salaries as a result. Mm. All right. So what, what we're going to ask is, is that everybody look into it. If you're if you're interested to give, uh, you know, a, a kidney, it, it, you're you're saving your souls. And you know, I know. Um, I have a friend in, in London who who did that. Who uh, again, a complete stranger. So it, it's not always our family that we, we're going to do that to. You know, it, it's really an honor to do that. And there's a saying. You know, if you save one man, uh, it's a Talmud saying. If you save one man, you save the world. If you save one person, and you know, you, you really change the world. And, and Lily is one of those people who really, you know, has been principal of the year. Uh, you know, she's really stood up for children's and changed her commi- her community. Uh, you know, this is not somebody who, you know, it's just circumstances that, that have come along that have brought her to where she's at. Uh, is there any final messages or, or, or what I call, you know, we'll walk in our magic garden. Is there any final seeds you'd like to plant with us that uh, can grow? Well, you know, I... I am still uh, involved with 
the Khan Fellows Program, uh, which is a, a professional development program for distinguished principals across the country. And so, you know, we we always felt that, you know, there there are so many things that we want to do in in improving um, the educational experience for children across the country. That I would like to continue that work. And so, you know, this this is uh, this is something that really, um, you know, I I, I I don't know if you know about the Khan Fellows Program. Do you? I I do not. Why don't you share that with us, please? Okay, the Khan Fellows Program uh, was a program uh, that was uh, developed and uh, conducted at uh, Columbia Teachers College. And I, I was in the first cohort in 2003, where they identify the top principals in uh, New York City to be part of the program. And the reason why they did that was because, you know, when when you have uh, when you have principals out there, they, they you know the ones who are doing really really well are hardly ever supported. They're always the ones that are being uh, asked to help the ones who are not doing so well Mm -hmm. and the professional development that uh that the districts provide you know because they have to you know be conscious of the the scores and and the performance of all schools the tendency is for the uh you know the the districts to focus on the ones that are not doing well and so you know the the bottom half of the bell curve gets all the attention and the top half the of the bell curve is constantly being called upon to help the bottom of the bell curve. The, the problems of the um, principles at the bottom are not the same as, you know, of the, of the, not the same as the problems of the uh, principles at the top. And so, you know, the, the, the issues that we have at the top, uh, you know, we have to basically fend for ourselves in terms of trying to figure out what to do for the next steps. You know, we're asked to move the kids to the next level, you know, and if, and if you know, the hardest part is to move the final 3%. You know, you, it's easier to move the bottom, you know, if, you're, if their school is failing, any kind of improvement is an improvement. But when you're at the top, it's hard to constantly show that growth and movement. And so this organization um, was set up by a uh, person who was very concerned about public education, Charles Kahn, and where he said, you know, let's provide support for the top performing principles so that they will stay there, that there is, you know, we can lessen the attrition, we can lessen the burnout so that they can remain in the system to keep the system going. And so I was one of the original uh, 16 that were chosen for this program Mm. in 2003. Um, it, it's since grown. Uh, I was, when I was uh, retiring as principal uh, from, uh, from my school in 2014, I was recruited by Chuck Khan to be the director of this program. And so I, was the, I served as director of this program from 2014 to 2016. And until I, I really got sick, uh, with my uh, kidney condition, I, I uh, remained as director of that program. But we have grown that program from the 16 in, our, in New York City to having 
hundreds of principals in this program across the country. And so the program now serves not only New York City, but Chicago, Atlanta, uh, Miami, Tampa, Los Angeles, uh, Denver, Dallas. You know, we have and we have principals coming together to uh, meet and, and, and uh, you know, learn from each other to able to be able to see what others uh, are able to do. We're able to share our problems and find that we're not alone in our problems, but uh, but have other solutions that maybe we never thought of. And so, you know, the, the network that we set up has been phenomenal. And in fact, we just had a, uh, a, a study group for this year's cohort this past weekend. And, you know, I was asked to present again on 9-11 uh, to talk about the experience and the, uh, you know, the things I learned as a leader during a crisis situation and what lessons I've learned as a result. I'd like to continue doing this, but I can't if I don't find a kidney. And so, you know, the things that I, um, you know, I don't, I, I, I still don't think I've lived my life to the fullest. And I'd like to continue that if I can get a kidney. I think one of the things that, you know, you once asked me, you know, what, what, what things would, you know, what was that uh, expression? I would use, uh, you know, a catchphrase. Um, I think when I think about it, you know, in order to be a leader, you have, you know, if you're not, you can't be a leader if there are no people following you. Mm. And so you have to look at those skills that would make you the Pied Piper and make you the person that people want to follow and want to listen to. And so I think it's necessary for the leader to be a good listener, the leader to be empathetic and to understand what makes people move and people work and tick um, and put all those together and, and, and make everybody's life a lot better. I think that's the perfect way to end it because we, you know, it, it, it speaks to us on so many different levels, not only, uh, you know, just the leadership piece, but also in terms of your piece is we need to help each other out. We need to show up in each other's lives. And by making that impact as teachers, principals, administrators do, but also as just community members showing up in, in each other's lives and really just being there to grow that bigger community. It starts with you. And if you can help out in any way to help Lily's plight in, in getting a kidney, talk about it. I, I was down in D.C. this past weekend, so I, I spoke about it, and I, you know, and we're going to put this out. We'll get this back out on social media. And Lily, you know, we wish you the best, uh, not only during the holiday season, but always. And I'll, you and I will keep in touch, and uh, we're just going to keep pushing out the message till you get your kidney. Thank you very much. All right, and everybody else, as always. You know, let's really put, pull together as our own tribe, as our clan, as we welcome Lily into our, our clan and, and tribe. And, you know, find that peace and love within ourselves to see what we could do to help out just by talking about it. You know, putting, shining the light on the things and peace and love. And when we do it, we'll hit our sweet spot and we'll knock it out of the park by getting Lily her, her kidney and helping people like it, Lily to get healthier and change the lives of others. And as this is going to be right before 
the uh, Christmas holiday. I just want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. And if, you know, just in this time of good season, we're still in the middle of Hanukkah, Kwanzaa's coming up. Let's all connect together and help each other out and move things over. As always, peace, love, and when you bring a bat, I hope you have the sweet spot. I'm really glad that you're enjoying our show. Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios. Executive produced by David Chemetsky and George Andriopoulos. Music selections by James Grant, Zach Nelson, and James Gaither, and licensed through Storyblock. Sound effects and sponsorship music licensed through Epidemic Sound. Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat is hosted with Podbean. Subscribe to our show wherever podcasts are available. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share with all of your friends. Follow us on Facebook at Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat. Follow me, Uncle Dave, Dave Shemetsky, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse. You can find all those links and more info at davidshemetsky.com. For show ideas, feedback, guest inquiries, or just to chat, reach out to me at peacelovebringabat at gmail.com. For sponsorship and media inquiries, reach out to Peace Love Bring a Bat at lp516.com. Make sure to follow all the great podcasts produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. Today's journey has come to a close, my friends. I hope the seeds of peace and love continue to grow for each one of you. Remember that peace and love surrounds you and will assist you to rise again. But don't forget to bring a bat for what you believe in. Namaste. Namaste.